Hello, welcome to Head on History. I'm your host, Ali Alomi. I'd like to start out with a, a comment from one of uh, my wonderful listeners. History Nerd asks, could you explain what historians think about Muhammad? Is there any evidence for his existence? Love your podcast. Well, thank you for your uh, question. I actually had this episode planned in advance, so this kind of works perfectly with it. Um, so I'm going to use your question to jumpstart uh, this topic, which is to really look at the historicity of Muhammad. Who is the historical Muhammad? Not the the kind of fig, the religious figure that emerges um, within for the devout, but how do we historians look at sources and uh, come to the story of Muhammad? Did he exist? Did he not exist? Is he the representation of him seen within uh, the pious and religious circles, the ones that historians see. Well, how did Muhammad's reception of Muhammad change over the years? And what are the kind of major debates? As usual, if you are listening to this podcast, uh, be sure to follow along vis-a-vis social media. You can do so by going to A-A-O-L-O-M-I on Twitter or Instagram and using the hashtag History. I'll be checking it uh, regularly and including it in the podcast like I did uh when we started. So thank you for joining us. Let's dive right into the historical Muhammad. The thing about Muhammad is that he is both simultaneously the one of the only religious figures of the ancient world born within the kind of full light of history, meaning that he was born at a time where we have more evidence about him than we have any other religious figure. So there's more attesting to Muhammad's existence than, say, Jesus's existence or Buddha's existence. Yet at the same time, he's still relatively hard to pin down for historians. There's a lot of debate about what his life actually looked like. For the faithful, there is a kind of outline. He was likely born around 570, died around 630. He was a uh, a young orphan. His uh, orphaned very early on, raised by other members of his tribe, uh, his grandfather and his uncle. He was a merchant of the Hashemite branch of the Quraysh. The Quraysh were a kind of uh, elite of Mecca. Uh, he marries a, a widower, a, a widow, a very wealthy woman who ran her own merchant company called Khadija around 610. He receives this revelation when he's going to uh, the Mount of Hira, the Jabal al-Nur, and he starts to preach, and his preaching leads him to get into trouble with the authorities. The Quraysh are like, you got to stop that right now. And he's forced to migrate because he faces a massive persecution, so he migrates to Medina. There is a series of battles, alliances, back and forth. His fortune kind of waxes and wanes. On one instance, he's, he's successful at his first battle, the Battle of Badr, but then he subsequently loses the Battle of Uhud, but then he wins uh, some other ones and by 630 he's managed to create a massive new tribal force uh, that is connected vis-a-vis religion and they return back to Mecca in 630 in what is mostly a, a bloodless and peaceful conquest of Mecca and he establishes the religion of Islam and subsequently dies and leaves uh, the tradition in the hands of his successors uh, depending on if you're Sunni or Shia, you might think that it was Abu Bakr or Ali, his his cousin. But that's the rough outline of what the faithful believe uh, about Muhammad's life. And most of this is drawn from 
uh, stories that have been told about Muhammad, the Quran, uh, as well as uh, you know traditions that have come to become normative within Islamic tradition. For us as historians, none of this is really verifiable. We don't have a clear outline of Muhammad's life. We don't know um, a lot about him. Most historians accept, or there is consensus on a few things. First, that Muhammad did exist. Uh, but there is enough evidence to argue that Muhammad existed. There is a debate on what time period existed. Some argue that he lived earlier, and some argue that he may have lived later, past 630. There is some reference to uh, from non-Christian sources, uh, specifically Greek and Syriac, that refer to the Ishmaelites being led by a prophet in a chariot. And this, they're like, well, if, if the Arab conquests happen after Muhammad's death, so this must be someone else. It's also very possible that when they're referring to led by this prophet, they're referring to one of the Khalifs. But there is some question about what time period he or how long he actually lived when he was alive was it earlier or was it later we do know he was very likely an orphan of some sort or someone who was on the margins of society a lot of his message is shaped by what seems to be personal experience and that is a personal experience of feeling alienated from your society we also have pretty strong evidence that he did build a religious movement uh, that he had compiled some type of religious text like the quran um, and then when he passed away uh, you know, the religion expanded and grew into something more. And, th and that's basically all we know about him. It isn't a law, but it is more than we know about other religious figures. We can verify to some extent that he did exist. Now, some historians say he didn't exist. Some historians go that there is no evidence for Muhammad in any way, shape, or form, that the Muhammad was likely a, um, a kind of rethinking, if you will, of, uh, you know, the past by the Arabs who had conquered this vast region. They had created this empire and they needed to kind of create the origins of them, the narrative of their origins, and so the Muhammad was part of that. Um, the reality is that the evidence is, is pretty, pretty strong. There is a particular... A thesis that was put forth by Patricia Crone and Michael Cook in the book Agorism. For those of you that listened to last week's episode, uh, I talked a lot about them, and that's because they really are the openings of a revisionist understanding of Islam. And in their book Agorism, they argued that there is no hard evidence, really, that the Quran was contemporaneous to Muhammad, or that Muhammad even lived in Arabia, that he was likely a kind of minor figure uh, that lived probably in the Levant, and that he, uh, later, kind of theologians and, and intellectuals who were trying to rationalize this massive empire, they created uh, the myth behind Muhammad. Now, most academics have uh, disproved or disagree with this thesis in hackerism. There isn't a lot of evidence for what Patricia Crone and Michael Cook are putting forth in their book. It's an interesting thesis, and certainly what it does is it raises the question of how important was Muhammad, um, and did that importance remain the same throughout the history of Islam? But the idea that he may not have existed in Arabia, that he may not have actually possibly existed, and even that the Quran wasn't written by him, all of that is not 
consensus according to academic scholars. Um, there's, uh, you know, a really great uh, quote here that, I, that I'd like to, to share with the rest of you. F.E. Peters, who's a very famous scholar, wrote, Few have failed to be convinced that what is in our copy of the Quran is in fact what Muhammad taught and is expressed in his own words. Uh, that is to say, fundamentally, that, that whatever is in the Quran convincingly tells us that that was likely Muhammad's message. And the Muhammad is directly connected to the Quran as, as it's his author or reciter or revealer, whatever you want to believe, but he is directly linked to it. And I think F.E. Peters really puts forth a pretty good argument. He based off of the sources um, that the Muhammad likely exists. The rough outline of Muhammad's life is roughly true. That yes, he existed. We don't know the details. We don't know which battles were really fought, which weren't fought. Did he even immigrate from Mecca to Medina? We don't know about those details. They're not attested to in historical fact uh, or in historical sources, but we do know that he existed and we do know that he had a movement and we do know that he preached some type of Quran. And so we can use that Quran, based off of what F.B. Peter says, if we accept that the Quran is in fact doesn't is connected to Muhammad, which we can do so vis-a-vis -vis dating. If you listened to last week's episode, I talk about the uh, Yemen Quran, the Sanam manuscripts, as well as the Birmingham Quran and the dating of that, which is convincing enough to argue that Muhammad, uh, that the Quran is contemporaneous to Muhammad and likely, uh, you know, written by him or, or, or authored by him, etc. Now. If we accept that to some degree or with some level of confidence that the Quran is a historical document, then we can use the Quran as one of the major sources for understanding Muhammad's life. This is great. On one hand, it's useful because now we have a contemporaneous source that tells us a little bit about Muhammad. But it gets a little bit tricky because the Quran, like I said last week, is not a historical, is not a text bound by history. It doesn't have a beginning. It doesn't have a real clear end. And so you have to kind of mine for it. More importantly, the Quran doesn't mention Muhammad a lot. Uh, it's not, a, you know, unlike the Bible, which is literally, or the Gospels, which is literally the story of Jesus, um, the Quran is not. The Quran is not particularly interested in elevating the position of Muhammad. Muhammad in the Quran is just the reciter, the kind of vessel by which this message is coming through. So as historians, we have to read against the grain. That is, we have to look and kind of read between the lines to see a little bit about what, what we could find about Muhammad. This kind of mining of evidence is a really important important way of doing history. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some verses and we're going to do this history together. We're going to we're in this journey together. It's going to be a very kumbaya moment. And we're going to we're going to kind of try to see if we can piece together the story of Muhammad collectively. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to be your guide. I'll be your your Miss Frizzle. What was her name? The Magic School Books lady, Miss Frizzle? Yeah, I had to double check with my sound my sound dude because I couldn't remember her name. Um, so I'm going to give you four verses and that's actually roughly how how many verses in the Quran reference Muhammad. Muhammad. There's only about like four to five verses that directly mention Muhammad. So that gives us some evidence that there was some dude named Muhammad, that that is some confirmation. There are other verses di directly reference him. The Quran is a dialogic text, meaning that it often gives him instructions. There's actually this fascinating moment in the Quran where the Quran rebukes Muhammad or goes, look, Muhammad, you did wrong here. This is what you should have done. So there's this great back and forth that's going on in it. But there are four that directly reference him. And I'm going to cite them and we're going to see if we can do a 
little bit of history. So the first one is chapter 33, verse 22. And it says, Verily you have in the prophet of Allah an excellent model for him who fears Allah in the last day and who remembers Allah much. So we see here that there is someone that the Quran very clearly is not just a text that's from ancient times and come back. That the Quran sees itself as being recited by someone, and that someone is the Prophet of Allah, the Prophet of Allah, and that the, he is a model for people who believe in God in the last day. We believe as historians that that is really actually the core of Muhammad's message early on, that much later, and again, you can reference uh, last week's episode for the Meccan and Medinan differences in the Quran, that the early message of Islam, that is the, the message that Muhammad began his prophetic and preaching career with in Mecca, likely just revolved around this idea of there is a last day, a sort of day of judgment, that there is one God, there is a prophet who is warning you about that God, there's this message that he's sending you, and that message is that there is a last day, a day of judgment. And that's really all there is to it. And in fact, if we were to look chronologically at the Quran, the verses that we believe arrived earliest or, or first all have that message, this idea of, oh shit, the world will come to an end and you will have to have an accounting for your actions. That you've gone, something has happened and it's gone wrong. So here God has sent this message. So here we have that Muhammad's early message was likely this idea that there is a God, there's a single God. This God communicates with humanity vis-a-vis -vis people and that that communication is like people, at the end of the day, you're going to have to face me. Right, so that's the message. Then, in in the same chapter, chapter thirty three, verse forty four, it goes on to say, Muhammad is not the father of any of your men, but he is the messenger of Allah, the seal of prophets, and Allah has full knowledge of all things. This is a particularly important verse for Muslims because they look at this and they refer to the Khatam al Nabiya, the seal of prophet, the idea that Muhammad isn't just a prophet; he is the last prophet, the kind of last messenger that that has arrived, um, and that there was messengers before him but that he was the last one and he completes the kind of message but what's really important for us as historians he goes muhammad is not the father of any of your men this lets us know that muhammad doesn't have a real clear lineage and that muhammad's lineage is up for question and indeed when we look at the shiatul ali that is the party of ali they look at muhammad's lineage vis-a-vis -vis his daughter and ali fatima and ali so that Muhammad doesn't have a son in the classic uh, Arabic tribal sense to pass on his mantle. That the kind of lineage comes through his daughter. And so Muhammad, likely, if he is the author of the Quran as we believe he is, there's this anxiety about his legacy. And so risks of clearly telling us that he is not the father of the men, but he, that he is this messenger of God, tells us his position within society. That his position likely was not a result of any familial connections. This reaffirms to us that not only is he not the father of any of the children of these people, but he also likely himself was not the son of any of these people. In other words, that he was likely an orphan. So that he is not 
His authority and his existence is not rooted in the fact that he is part of a tribal society, but something outside of this tribal society, that is his connection to God, is what makes him important. Not because he's the son of so-and-so or the grandson of so-and-so, and indeed the Quran doesn't mention his lineage very often. And so that that's, tells us something. It tells us that Muhammad's attempt to create this community is a, an attempt to create a religious community, one in which his position is fixed based off of his connection to God over his prophetic career, not his tribal relationships uh, or anything related to his societal or position in society. That's great. So we're starting to see a kind of picture emerge of a man who likely lived on the outskirts of society, was marginalized, probably either an orphan or came from a weaker branch of the family, um, and that he didn't leave behind any children or, or direct lineage, and that he had a kind of simple message early on. Then we go on to the next verse, okay? So that's the kind of image we have. The next verse says is from uh, Surah Imran, verse 144. It says, Muhammad is only a messenger. Many were the messengers that passed away before him. If they were, if he died or were slain, will ye then turn your back on your heels? If any did turn back on his heels, not the, the least harm will he do to Allah. But Allah, on the other hand, will swiftly reward those who serve him with gratitude. Now, this is interesting, right? So, on one hand, it goes, Muhammad is only a messenger, and there are many messengers before him. As a historian, we look at this, we go, okay, Muhammad is clearly saying, what I'm doing is not just something new, but it's part of a tradition, it's part of a lineage. I may not have a tribal lineage, I may not have a direct connection to Arabian society, but I do have a connection to other prophets, to other messengers, that I'm part of a lineage of people who have, who have had messengers, for, messengers uh, from God. So that's one. And then goes, if he died or were slain, will you turn your back? This tells us that the Muhammad's message wasn't easily received, that there was likely some kind of doubt in regards to his career, and that some people may have originally followed him and possibly turned away. This hints at the fact that there was probably a battle, that there was some physical conflict. The question of if he died or was slain, would you turn your back on your heels, tells us that Muhammad might have likely almost died at some point, and that there was some doubt or confusion or dissension amongst the community of what would happen this is the quran in other words rebuking or addressing this is muhammad really kind of using the language of the quran to address what seems to be a real concern a contemporary concern for him that is that if he were to die people would just turn away so we have this idea that it continued this idea of this legacy right his legacy is his prophetic career and in order to cement it he needs to make sure that people don't turn away when he dies this idea also tells us there were messengers that died before Right? Again, I am part of this tradition. Don't turn your back. He even goes, it will not do any harm to Allah, but Allah will swiftly reward those who serve him. So that it doesn't matter to God if you turn away. He doesn't need you, but you need God. This is great, right? It gives us a little bit about what might be going on in the milieu of Muhammad. That there was tension, that there was conflict, that Muhammad was facing doubt, and the Quran became a powerful sort of religious and symbolic tool by which to address doubt and dissension and people who might be turning away by directly saying that, look, this is what God is saying. God says, I don't need you, but you need me. Muhammad may die, but the message lives on beyond him. He is cementing his legacy in the Quran. He's putting the Quran above himself. He's saying that the Quran is more important than I am. 
And then uh, the final verse that I want to talk about uh, is a particularly good one. It's interesting. It comes to us uh, from a, it tells us a lot about Muhammad and his relationship to other religions. This comes from uh, Surah Saf, verse 6, and it says, And remember, Jesus, the son of Mary, said, O children of Israel, I am the messenger of Allah, sent to you confirming the law which came before me, and giving glad tidings of a messenger to come after me, whose name shall be Ahmad. And when he came to them with clear signs, they said, This is evidence sorcery. This is interesting, right? So what he's basically claiming is that there was a verse in the Bible. Now, we don't find this verse in the Bible, although there is a glad tidings verse in the Bible that indicates, and there is a, a verse that refers to a comforter in the Bible. The Bible says that though I will leave you, I will leave you with a comforter. And some Christians interpret that to be, uh, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the comforter that will continue to to assure the faithful even when Christ is gone. Um, and for Muhammad, what he does is he reinterprets that to some extent. The Quran goes, the comforter isn't just the Holy Spirit. The comforter or the person to come is this new person. And his name shall be Ahmad, which is a, a derivative of Muhammad is literally derived from Ahmad. They're the same triliteral root. So what he's doing is he's using the story of Christianity and Jesus to say, look, this was prophesied in way in the past. And here I am. On one hand, this is a really brilliant kind of theologically because it builds on what already is there it doesn't try to create something new it goes look there's already this lineage there's already this foundation i'm just the next level on this foundation it builds right on top of that it also tells us that muhammad was very aware and arabs were very aware during this time period of the theology of christianity or at least some element of it that they were aware that there was this thing called the glad tidings there was a there was a bible there was a gospel the good news and they were aware that there was this jesus figure and that this jesus figure was the son of mary that's a particularly interesting um kind of uh, configuration right they call him the son of mary because he doesn't have a, a physical father so they tell that tells us that the arabs were aware of the sort of theology or story of Christ, that he was born of a virgin, and this virgin was Mary. So not only is there sort of a, a brilliant kind of literary tactic that's used, building upon the Quran, building upon the Bible, I should say, therefore legitimizing the Quran as just the next chapter and legitimizing Muhammad as the next step, direct next step after Christ, that he is the Ahmad that has been prophesied, right? This is what prophecy does. Prophecy gives us a, as a kind of literary tool that allows people to retroactively uh, give themselves uh, foresight or or give themselves authority and legitimization. So we have this kind of retroactive, like, oh, look, the Bible says I was coming, and here I am, right? Here I am. Jesus prophesied that someone would come about. But it also tells us about Muhammad and the people, that these people were aware of these religious traditions. Muhammad himself, if he's citing Jesus, the son of Mary, it means that he knew about these stories. This gives us a little bit about Muhammad. It tells us on one hand that he was probably a traveler of some sort, maybe perhaps confirming to some degree the the basic uh, Muslim belief that he was probably a merchant, um, or that at the very least he was exposed to religions within 
Mecca and the Arabian Peninsula, that there was plenty of Christians, enough Christians and Jews and people who, were, who believed in the Bible, that this story wasn't just a random story, that this verse, if someone said, if he said, and remember Jesus, the son of Mary, no one went, who? Who that? No one said that, right? They went, oh, we know who you're talking about. So there's this, this is what this verse really reveals to us, is that there was a familiarity with Christianity and Jesus at the time. And the Muhammad was familiar to him. It's possible that he likely had pretty deep conversations. When he married his wife uh, Khadija, his wife Khadija had a cousin named Waraka, and Waraka was a Christian monk. So Muhammad very possibly communicated with Waraka a lot. Remember, Arabian society is tribal, meaning that he, and for someone like Muhammad, who likely didn't have family, he would need to rely on his wife's connections. He would be part of that extended family. He would meet Waraka, and he would hear stories from Waraka. And so, Jesus, this awareness of Jesus, tells us about Muhammad's religious education. That this is a man who isn't just referring to the Bible and the Quran uh, spontaneously, the Bible and, and the Torah spontaneously, but that he is aware of the religious traditions because it was part of his upbringing. That he grew up and that he met people and that he learned from people and he heard these stories and that these stories then made their way into the Quran as both a literary device to build the authority and and uh, legitimacy of Muhammad in the Quran but also as a way of uh, signposting for people who are listening. Arab Christians would hear this story and it would recall something for them. But before we move on and, and talk about that, let's do a quick rapid-fire round just so we can break up this story a bit. Take a nice break. All right, rapid-fire round. Jesus is in the Quran. If Muhammad is the leader of the Muslims, why aren't Muslims called Muhammadians? And why are so many Muslims named Muhammad? All right, so let's tackle these questions first. Jesus is in the Quran. Yeah, Jesus is in the Quran. In fact, Jesus and Moses are referred to more in the Quran than Muhammad is. And that's why the Quran can kind of be a little bit difficult when it comes to dealing with this history. But he's, Jesus is definitely there. There's a whole chapter dedicated to Mary, his mother. If Muslims follow Muhammad, why aren't they called Muhammadians? In some ways, that's how Christianity came about, right? Christians was kind of a pejorative term used by, by Greeks to refer to the followers of Christos. The Christians were literally the followers of Christos. And it stuck. But for Muslims, they didn't see themselves as Mohammedans because they may, were not just followers of Muhammad. They were the, the kind of central core that the Quran and God was more important than Muhammad was part of Islam very early on. That uh, despite the fact that later Muhammad does take on very very you know Christ like characteristics for some Muslims, the reality is that that the kind of unity of God or the strict monotheism of Islam was very very clear. And so that even the Quran itself, remember we mentioned the verse where it's like messengers die. Are you just going to turn away? That really speaks to this. So Muslims saw themselves as as people of Islam, that is, those who have submitted to God, not as Muhammadians, followers of Muhammad. But later historians, and in particularly Western historians, whatever Western means, but European historians, uh, would refer to Muslims as uh, Muhammadians or Muhammadans. Uh, and even the, the Constitution, even the founding fathers of the United States, they were very conscious of, of Muslims, and they said that we created a nation in which Muslim, Christian, 
I mean, a Christian, Jew, and Mahmadian could live and coexist peacefully. So people use the term Mahmadian for basically that misunderstanding that, well, these people are followers of Muhammad. And they, in the way that Christians follow Christ, these people follow Muhammad, so they're Mahmadians. But that's not how Muslims see themselves. And then why are so many Muslims named Muhammad? I don't know, bro. They're, you know, not creative. It's just it is what it is. It's the single most popular name in the world, followed by Ali. So apparently, my parents weren't that creative, but I prefer to see myself as the one and true Ali, and all others are fake imitations of Ali. <laughs> so let's get back into uh, the story of Muhammad, the historicity of Muhammad, and really look or the historical Muhammad. I'm going to bring up another verse, which I think is is really interesting, um, and it tells us a little bit more about the kind of religious traditions that Muhammad was familiar with. Uh, one of the feedbacks we received on the podcast on iTunes uh, let us know that um, you know they were interested in knowing Muhammad's connection with Christianity well here's here's some evidence and hopefully this answers your question uh, and when Allah will say oh Jesus son of Mary did you say to the people take me and my mother as deities besides Allah he will say, Exalted are you, it is not for me to say that to which I have no right. If I had said it, you would have known it. You know what is within myself, and I do not know what is within yourself. Indeed, it is you who are the knower of the unseen. And that's uh, Quran Surah 5, Ayat 116. So here there's this question. The Quran is literally talking about a conversation that Jesus and God will have. And in it, God is basically asking Jesus, hey, did you tell these people to worship you? Did you tell these people to worship you? And Jesus will say, no, I, I didn't. Yo, man, I'm, I had nothing to do with that. So what this is doing is it's interesting. On one hand, it's breaking with uh, most orthodox Christian positions, right? That Christ is the son of God. It's saying, no, God we're not co-equal. We're not. I'm not the same as God. But it, there's an interesting configuration here. He says, "Oh Jesus, Son of Mary, did you tell the people to take me and my mother as deities besides Allah?" Now this tells us something really cool. It's like a little breadcrumb that we can follow. It tells us the type of Christianity that likely was in Arabia during the time of Muhammad, and that is Nestorian Christianity. Nestorian Christianity was developed um, by the Archbishop of, of Constantinople. Uh, Nestorius, and he was a particular theologian who, after the series of councils that happened in Rome by the Roman Church, he had a position that was considered heretical. Nestorian Christians were part of what's known as the Eastern Church, and the Eastern Church, um, or the Assyrian Church and the Syriac Church, the Eastern Church um, was a loose kind of network of churches. It was not as centralized as the Roman world was. And so they didn't participate in a lot of the councils. For example, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon. And so even though they accepted the Orthodox position that Christ was God, they didn't accept all the other positions. And in particular, um, what Nestorius does, so Nestorius is part of that tradition, that tradition of kind of understanding what's going on in Rome, agreeing with some of it, but then doing your own thing, being a loose network, having your own kind of uh, path to follow. Well, Nestorius rejects this particular title known as Theo Theotokos. Theotokos, Theotokos, it's the Greek, it literally means mother of God, Theotokos. 
And Theotokos, mother of God, was an appellation that was given to Mary. Um, and this was uh, very notably uh, part of the Christian doctrine. This uh, was part of, uh, you know, the doctrine that was adopted after a series of councils. And the Council of Ephesus uh, in later, I think um, uh, roughly in the, in the 4th, 5th century or so, eventually condemns Nestorius. He goes, because you're not, because you refuse to acknowledge Mary as the mother of God, you therefore have to be condemned because you failed to uh, agree with 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 what we say, and his failure to use Theotokos as the for Mary, his rejection of her as the mother of God, is a big deal. It treats the the kind of Eastern Christianity by Western Christianity as a sort of heresy, and so Nestorian Christianity becomes heretical or is seen as heretical by some Orthodox Christian positions. That's interesting, though, because when he says, when the Quran, Muhammad says, Oh, Jesus, son of Mary, did you say to the people, take me and my mother as deities besides Allah? What he's talking about there is his understanding of the Nestorian position. Nestorius's rejection of Theotokos is a rejection of seeing Mary as anything other than Mary. Theotokos, mother of God, in some instances, elevates Mary to an even higher position. And so here we have some would go, oh, this is kind of a misunderstanding of the Trinity, because Muhammad does talk about the Trinity as being God, Jesus, and Mary, not God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but as three separate entities, God, Jesus, and Mary. And one could go, oh, well, he's obviously not understanding what the Trinity is. But that's not true. He's not, under he mean he's not familiar, perhaps, with the Roman tradition of Christianity, which had developed this orthodoxy about what the Trinity is, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But here he is within the Nestorian branch of Christianity, which is much more aligned with the Eastern Church and the Sasanians, that did, that did see this kind of elevation of Mary as a problem that looked at Roman Catholicism and saw the position of Theotokos as, as an aberration or a violation of, of their beliefs and so rejected Theotokos as a title for Mary, arguing that by doing so you were creating Mary as, as a, uh, just elevating her too high. That's interesting. So we see that this tells us a little bit of the type of Christianity that Muhammad was a part of. And this, this becomes a, a kind of major uh, point for some, some, some historians. Heinz Olig, uh, uh, who's actually a German historian of Christianity, um, and the German school. The German school is a kind of particular branch of his Orientalism and branch of Islamic studies that, that looks at connections with the ancient world uh, and Islam. Um, but the German school in particular used that particular verse and the revelation in some regards, or the kind of signaling, or the evidence, or the breadcrumb, if you will, the testimony, that Muhammad was aware of this kind of Nestorian position and the rejection of, uh, of Theoclosos, to argue that fundamentally that, that Islam probably started out as a particular Arabic Christian sect, that it was probably a type of Nestorianism that emerged as a resistance to the kind of attempts at orthodoxy, and that it's at the heart of Islam is a rejection of the Trinity. Um, and indeed, you, you, have, you have some pretty clear evidence that there is a, a pushback against the Trinity. Uh, in the Surah 4, Ayat 171, we hear, People of the book, do not go to excess in your religion, and do not say anything about God except the truth, the Messiah 
Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was nothing more than a messenger of God. His word directed to Mary a spirit from him. So believe in God and his messengers and do not speak of a trinity. Stop, that is better for you. God is only one God. He is far above having a son. Everything in the heavens and the earth belongs to him and he is the best one to trust. And indeed, we see it also in other surahs like Surah Ikhlas. Uh, say not that he begets, nor is he begotten, right? He says, God does not beget, he doesn't have a son, nor is he begotten, nor is he born. So we do see that there is a sort of anti-Trinity message within the Quran. But I think um, the German school and, and uh, Heinz Oleg go a bit too far in that conclusion. I don't believe that Muhammad was just a, a kind of a Christian sect that broke away, that it was a kind of heresy of uh, a kind of a heresy within a heresy, if you will. It was, a, it was the Nestorians that went even further. I don't think the evidence pans out for that. Most historians reject that position. In the same way that Patricia Crone kind of sees it more as a, she argues a kind of a Jewish alliance. Even that's kind of inaccurate. But it does reveal something to us. And I think that is important that Muhammad is within that, yes, there is a sort of anti-Trinity message within the Quran, which is likely a result not of Muhammad just coming up and being like, oh God, these Christians believe in the Trinity. It's wrong. But rather him being exposed to a particular non-Trinitarian versions of Christianity from uh, Nestorianism, which, which is a direct kind of rejection of, of the of Theoclotos and other positions, as well as other other forms of Christianity, so that he takes this non-Trinitarian Christianity and kind of brings it in within the theology of Islam. So he's aware of it, but I don't see him as fully within those traditions. He is not likely just a Christian Arab that broke off. And we have evidence in the fact that the Quran itself spends a very short amount of time on the Trinity. Yes, there are some times where Trinity is addressed. That tells us that Muhammad is interacting with Christians and he's putting forth kind of situating his community within the larger kind of network of religions. This is where we are. Yeah, we kind of agree with these Christians, but we kind of don't agree with these Christians. But on the same note, um, the Quran itself and the majority of Muhammad's message is not in any way, shape, or form part of Nestorianism, and it doesn't reflect Arab Christianity. It's, it is clearly a kind of a, its own separate thing, or at least something that is being developed as its own separate thing. So the Quran gave, uh, gives us some pretty good solid historical evidence, or at least we're able to use the evidence that comes out of it to understand what, you know, a little bit more about Muhammad. It also you know, is a good reminder of ancient Arabia in particular. You know, The verses about the Christians lets us know that there were Christian tribes. We know about the Tay and the Taghlib tribes, for example, who were Christian. But there are other sources that we use in order to kind of verify the historicity of Muhammad or to try to understand who is the historical Muhammad. Um, one is the Hadiths. The Hadiths are, the, are pretty unreliable, though. Most historians treat the Hadiths with caution, and there's a reason for that. Uh, there's a good book by Jonathan Brown that I'll recommend at the end, who, which really looks at the fact that the Hadiths are tradition. One, they, no one starts to write down the Hadiths until roughly about 100 to 150 years after Muhammad. And they start to write the hadiths down really as a way of kind of internalizing Islam. That is, they're trying to understand the various tenets of the Qur'an. They're trying to understand the principles of the Qur'an in this develop this new world, this kind of global experience, this moment in when suddenly Islam is not just what's going on in Mecca and Medina, but now in Damascus and Baghdad, etc. So the hadiths were a way of kind of articulating in these new circumstances, a way of kind of writing down and historicizing and contextualizing the Qur'an. 
Quran. And they did so vis-a-vis the Muhammad. Muhammad became a central figure of the Hadith. In other words, the Hadith take Muhammad and make him like a walking, talking Quran. Muhammad says this. Muhammad said that. As a result, though, you also have a lot of hadiths that justify certain positions. Muhammad says, don't rebel against your rulers, things like that, right? Which your local ruler will be like, hell yeah, that's what Muhammad says, you better not fight against me. So the hadiths are kind of tricky. Now, that doesn't mean the hadiths, you just throw the baby out with a bath while they're not important. No, the hadiths, we approach them with caution, but also recognize that there is a science to the hadith known as isnad, and that is the, the kind of looking at the witnesses, the transmission of witnesses. And this is the early attempt. This is really an early attempt at scientific history, or the kind of histor- history that we do today in the contemporary world. Up until that point, there really isn't really a systemized way of approaching history in much of world history. From the Romans, you look at uh, the Greek sources of history, from Herodotus and Plutarchs to to, to to the Roman Tacitus and Suetonius, Suetonius, and all of them. There isn't really a kind of systematized way of approaching uh, the chronicle of history, but we see it in the Hadiths, and this is why the Hadith literature uh, emerges alongside the Tarikh literature, the historical writings. Um, the Hadiths are a way of of kind of system. So what they do is they they categorize Hadiths into strong Hadiths, kind of okay Hadiths, weak Hadiths, and invalid Hadiths by tracing the testimony, who said what to whom, and was it possible for them to say it? Is that is there a clear line of transmission or not? And so we have to approach the Hadiths with a little bit of caution, but they're another source that we can use. Then there is the final kind of Muslim source, and those are the Sirat. The Sirat are the biographies of Muhammad. The earliest that we know of is Ibn Ishaq, who died, I think, in the 8th century, probably 760s or so, 768. And he wrote something known as Siratul Rasul Allah, that is the, the kind of biography of the Prophet of God. But we don't have uh, his writings. Instead, his writings are preserved in his student uh, much later on by Ibn Hisham, who died in the 9th century, uh, 834 or so. Um, and Yunus B. bin Boyak Bukayar, who was also another person. So they preserve Ibn Ishaqs. And the thing with the biographies is they're a lot like the Hadiths. They're not about establishing a historical Muhammad. Instead, even though they're biographies, they're really about trying to find out what the events around Muhammad's life were, what battles did he fight, what expeditions, and who did he talk to, because they then lead... Uh, to an attempt to historicize the Hadiths. They allow, okay, well, the Hadiths arrived during this time. It was, this is what was going on, on when Muhammad said this. This verse of the Qur'an arrived during this particular moment in Muhammad's life. So it's less about Muhammad and, less, uh, and more about attempting to historicize the Qur'an and the Hadiths, the kind of events of Muhammad's life. And it's not really focused on who he was as a person or a lot of his experiences. There's a lot that's left unsaid in the in the sirat. But the sirat and the biographies are definitely interesting. And it's a source that we use both uh, historians and, and Muslims as well. For Muslims, it plays a more important role. Historians approach it with a little bit of caution, but they are very, they are genuinely interested in, in the sirat. What also the, the sirat does is the sirat is the beginnings of the narratives of Muhammad. That is the kind of myth-making that happens along with the Hadith. The two of them work together to kind of create a narrative about Muhammad's life.
Remember, there's a lot of details that are uncertain, and we don't know how important he was, whether what happened to it, but we do know that the Muslims started to create a story around Muhammad, and that story became important to Muslim identity, especially during the Umayyad period. For those of you who are interested, you should listen to season one, and where I'm talking about the Umayyads, with this, this idea that suddenly Muslims were confronted with a really big, wide world, and you had this government, the Umayyad government, that wasn't quite living up to what the Quranic principles were. And so people turned inwards. They turned to an attempt to, to localize religion. How do you practice Islam if your government isn't quite Islamic? And the hadiths and the sirat and the narratives that emerge that centralize Muhammad are an attempt to bring Islam into the individual personal level. If the larger community is kind of falling apart, then the local community can just rally around the figure of Muhammad. So he becomes a sort of interesting community figure by which people can, can roll. In some ways, we can argue that a similar process happens in nationalism, right? National characters, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, etc., founding fathers, uh, become people, kind of myths and legends by which people can form their identity around. What is American? It's George Washington. Muhammad plays a very similar role, and we see that in the Hadiths and the Sirat. But there are also uh, uh, historical documents that attest to Muhammad. The first is the Constitution of Medina. We do have evidence of some Constitution of Medina. We don't have the actual documents, but it, it's attested to in the Sirat. So Ibn Ashaq and Ibn Hisham are the ones that tell us about the constitution of Medina and it's a pact that he makes with the tribes of Yathrib of what becomes known as Medina the Jewish tribes and those that eventually convert to Islam what are known as the Ansar or the helpers um, and that gives us evidence that of Muhammad's dealings in some regards that there was this kind of tribal communication there was this attempt to create a coalition or of, of tribes uh, that defended one another that protected one another and more importantly that was rooted in belief not in bloodline and then we have this other document known as the Covenant of uh, Muhammad, also known uh, as the Ashtaname of Muhammad. And the Ashtaname of Muhammad is this document that most, there's some debate about it, but most historians, the consensus is that it is a historical document. It's accurate. It's not a forgery. And it was made with a Christian church. It was made with a monastery and the, the monks of, of the Sinai. And it's this basic agreement that says, look, you guys, you Christian monks, we're not going to bother you. The the letter actually says, the, the bulk of the letter, I'm going to read some of the passages for you because I think they're important and they tell us something. This is a letter which was issued by Muhammad, Ibn Abdullah, the messenger, the prophet, the faithful, who is sent to all the people as the trust on the part of God to all his creatures that they may have no issue against God in the hereafter. For verily, God is all-powerful and wise. This letter is directed to the embracers of Islams uh, as a covenant and pact given to the followers of Jesus the Nazarene in the east and into the west, into the far and the near, to the Arabs and the non-Arabs, to the known and the unknown. And it goes on to say, and it gives this kind of agreement, and it's basically a kind of rules by Muslims, how Muslims are to deal with Christians as they go about their community or their, their expansion. No one is allowed to plunder these Christians 
Christians or to destroy or spoil any of their churches or houses of worship or take any of the things contained within those houses and bring it to the houses of Islam. And he who takes anything away from them will be one who is who has corrupted this pact of God and in truth has disobeyed his messenger. So what this pact shows us in one hand is that Muhammad is the leader of the community. And while his central, his, how important he is theologically may have varied, that politically he is at the heart of the Muslim community. He's the one that's creating the pact. He is the chieftain of this new kind of super tribe. Secondly, that Muhammad likely existed. This document is a kind of physical testimony of Muhammad. There's even a handprint on there. So this is a kind of good, solid document that tells us about the historicity of Muhammad. It's why most consensus about Muhammad is that he did exist, because we have documents like the Ashtaname of Muhammad or the or the Covenant of Muhammad. It also, again, reaffirms the idea that Muhammad was part of broader religious traditions. Here, he sees the Christians as part of this kind of community. Not fully the same. They're clearly separate. There's the house of Jesus of Nazarene, and there's the house of Islam that he's talking about, but that these houses are not at war with one another, that they're part of an alliance of tribes, and that though the Muslims would encounter all sorts of people, their allies would be the Christians, the Christians, they have this kind of, not just a non-aggression treaty, but a treaty of respect and alliance. So it gives us again an example of the kind of where Muhammad existed, what type of milieu. But there are also non-Muslim sources that attest to the uh, historicity of Muhammad. And I think one of the best of them that really gives us, that kind of summarizes from an outside perspective what we know about Islam uh, is an Armenian bishop known as Sabius. Sabius is writes relatively contemporaneous to Muhammad. Either he wrote right during uh, the end of Muhammad's life or shortly thereafter. And so he's a really good document. For most of us historians, we use Sabius. Uh, Patricia Crone uses him. Fred Donner uses him. Um, I use him. A lot of us use him as a source, a really solid source. And he writes, he writes this document. He goes, at that time, a certain man from among those who are the sons of Ishmael, whose name was Muhammad, a merchant as if by God's command, appeared to them as a preacher and as a giver of truth. He taught them to recognize the God of Abraham, especially because he was learned and informed of the history of Moses. Now, because the command was from on high at a single order, they all came together in the unity of a single religion. Abandoning their veil, vain cults, they turned to a living God who had appeared to their forefather, Abraham. So Muhammad legislated for them not to eat carrion, nor drink wine, nor speak falsely, and to not engage in fornication. He said with an oath, God promised this land to Abraham and that his seed after him forevermore. And he brought about what he promised during his time while he loved Ishmael. But now you are the sons of Abraham, and God is accompanying you, accomplishing his promise to Abraham and his seed in you. Love fully and sincerely, only the God of Abraham, and go and seize the land which God gave your forefather Abraham. No one will be able to resist you, for God is with you. And I think Sabius does a great job of summarizing what we know about Muhammad. I've gone through the evidence, piecing it together bit by bit with you. This was our journey, and Sabius brings it all together. It lets us know that Muhammad came from this Arabian world, that Muhammad was aware 
aware of the kind of mosaic and Christian traditions within Arabia, that he knew about Christianity and more importantly was aware of the history of Moses and built upon that Moses. By calling upon the Arabs as the sons of Ishmael, he's not creating a new myth but invoking an old myth, a myth that the Arabs themselves believed, that they were descendants of Abraham, that they were descendants of Ishmael. And that Muhammad was the fulfillment of a sort of pact. And so he was he's sitting there really repurposing the kind of Jewish and Christian history that the Arabs were familiar with, him kind of using, being a product of that kind of milieu to really forge something new. And this new thing was this path of truth, this unifying religion that said that there is only one God, and that is the God of Abraham, to abandon all these other cults, the kind of polytheism, to not eat carrion, to not drink wine, to not speak falsely, to not engorge in fornication, and to come together as one people. This, in other words, is the basic architectonic, if you will, the basic structure of Islam as it emerged by the time of Muhammad's death. This is what we know, that he existed, that he uh, had a, a singular kind of message, which is monotheism, that there is this last day, this day of judgment, that you needed to be righteous as a people, come together and unified into a single kind of coalition tribe where that brought together Jews and Christians and all righteous people to take care of the vulnerable and the marginalized within it, that there was a long lineage of messengers from Moses and Jesus to Muhammad, and that Muhammad was just the last of them. And that this was a brother tradition or sister tradition of Christianity and Judaism. And that he was merely the last messenger come to fulfill this promise, bring everyone together um, and unify them into a single kind of tribe. That's what we know. That's the rough outline. The thing is that we can attest to the historicity of Muhammad and attest these documents attest to kind of the basic structure of Islam and biography of Muhammad, but that the details remain unsure. We still don't know if, you know, how he grew up, what his experience really was. Was he really an orphan or not? We don't know that. It's likely, but we're not sure. What are the details? How many battles did he fight? Did he really fight all those battles or are some of them myth-making that are meant to show the prowess of Muhammad and his ability to overcome all odds? Uh, what type of persecution that he faced? Uh, what, how, what formal education he may had? He clearly was educated in the religious milieu of his day in the dialogue and the discourse and he was participating in the debate. But what did, was he perhaps maybe uh, leaning towards one of the traditions? Was he maybe an Arab Jew or an Arab Christian? Was he a Hanif? We're not quite sure about that. We don't know what when he died and when he lived. We just kind of have rough outlines. So there's a lot of the details that are still kind of unsure. But we have, at the very least, some good historical outline about him. The question that I want to leave us with and end with is, how important is Muhammad to Muslims? And this is where I think Patricia Crone is on stronger ground in Hagarism. Well, I think she's wrong about the kind of some of the historical claims she makes. I think she is right in saying that Muhammad's importance developed over time. That without the doubt, he was the political leader and the political and social leader of the movement that emerged in Arabia that is called Islam, but that that religion, the, the his importance kind of waxed and waned in that religion. The Quran itself treats Muhammad as just a man. It's very clear, Muhammad is just a man. He is not the father of any of your children, of your men. He is not the son of any of your men. He will die. Will you then give up and turn away from this legacy if he dies? So it's very clear. It's, it wants to call that out to say that he is just a man, but that he's obviously an important man, a man who has come and passed this message. 
And so what we can probably say is that the early period, um, the message and the Quran were more important. Because the key in the Quran itself is that it's all about the message. It's not about the messenger. That yeah, the messenger is important, but he's not the heart of it in the same way that Jesus is. What Jesus is to Christianity, Muhammad is not to Islam. The Quran is to Islam what Jesus is to Christianity. That is to say that the central message of Christianity is technically not the Bible. The best the Bible transmit the is, transmits the message. The message, however, is Christ Himself. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Right. That is Christ. For Muslims, however, Muhammad is not the message. He is just the means by which the message is transmitted. The message is the Quran. But that eventually his importance does grow. That even though the early community, and we see this, the Umayyads in particular, the Umayyad Khalifs, don't refer to Muhammad that often. This is also probably because they were kind of engaged in conflict with the Shiatul Ali, who claimed that the lineage of Muhammad was the only authoritative uh, f force within the community. And so naturally refer referring to Muhammad may possibly have bolstered the Aliyids. And so they didn't. They referred, they they, they tried to avoid it as much as possible. But that as the Umayyads, as the, the kind of intellectual and spiritual crisis within the community came about, and they started to see the Umayyads as fractured and fragmented, that Muhammad takes on a more and more important role, that he does become a central figure, and that the people start to write the hadiths and the sirat as a narrative making, that this becomes part of the narrative of who we are as a people. If we can't be the Umayyads because the Umayyads are doing all these kind of funky things, then we are the people of Muhammad who lived in this way and we will emulate him. And so that Muhammad's importance waxed and waned, but it grew and grew over time. And he became a central figure, almost as important as the Quran itself. That that, that in that regards, that kind of historical relationship is one that is worthy of, of uh, interrogating and exploring further. Hopefully this was interesting for all of you. I, uh, you know, I went through the kind of evidence there is for Muhammad's existence. There was a kind of journey I showed you, the peak behind the curtain of what it is we historians do in order to come about the story of Muhammad. There's still a lot that's being debated. There's a lot of uh, arguments that are being made that we're not sure about. So I'm going to end this with just three books that I think are really, really good in that regards for you. The first is going to be Karen Armstrong's book, Muhammad, a Prophet, uh, for our time. I think it's a really good book. Karen Armstrong is a really solid scholar of religions. I know I've recommended many of her books over the years. Uh, or Muhammad, a biography, is one of her older takes on it. Um, any of the versions are good, but any, Karen Armstrong's book on Muhammad is fantastic. I recommend her a lot because she is good. I consider her one of those scholars that does an amazing job of educating the public. Though she may not do academic work, her work still has is on solid ground academically. And more importantly, she's able to kind of transmit the kind of academic debates about Muhammad to the public really well. So I highly recommend it. Fred Donner's um, book on Muhammad and the Believers is fantastic. I've recommended it last season. I'm going to recommend recommend it yet again. This is a really, really good book. Fred Donner comes out of the Islamic Revisionist School, and he's a, one of the best kind of scholars of our of our time period. He engages with Patricia Crone, pushes back on some aspects of it, introduces new ideas, and I think that's a really good book for both understanding Muhammad, what milieu he grew up in, what climate and culture he grew up in, and what kind of community that he developed. And finally, I'm going to recommend Jonathan A.C. Brown's Misquoting Muhammad, The Challenge and Choices of Interpreting the Prophet's Legacy which is a really good way of understanding what happens after Muhammad. What is Muhammad's legacy? How are the hadiths written down? What are the sirat? And 
How do those uh, the kind of the legacy develop as a result of historical conditions? Those are the three books. Hopefully, you enjoyed this podcast. Let me know your thoughts vis-a-vis social media using the hashtag Head on History. I would love to hear from you. Thank you for tuning in, and remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Bye.